American ship crashed off of the Canadian island of Grand Manan in a storm, leaving its crew clinging to a rock in the Bay of Fundy. It was so small that at high tide, it would rise up to the stranded sailors' waists. For 44 hours, these shipwrecked sailors clung to that rock before they were rescued by a fishing boat crewed by a local grandfather, father, and son. The grateful sailors made sure that the American media learned about the unlikely maritime hero's actions, and the rescuers ended up being brought to Washington, D.C. that Christmas, where the American president presented them with a medal for their bravery. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author, Andrew McLean. The severe storm on October 16, 1900, lasted for the better part of two days and heavily damaged Grand Manan Island which is a large forested island in the fog-shrouded Bay of Fundy, between Nova Scotia and Maine. It was home to several hundred people living in the handful of small villages back then, and the vast majority of these people living there were fishermen. The Daily Telegraph newspaper published a news item about that storm. The storm was felt in all its severity and the island presented a pitiful spectacle. The beach was lined with wreckage from small craft, and it was discovered in Whitehead Passage alone that 17 boats have been lost. Roads have been completely washed out, and bridges gullied out. Many have lost their sheds, slips, and smokehouses, which have been practically destroyed. The lowest estimate of the damage to the island is $5,000, which, considering the failure of fishing this year, is no small item. Out at sea, an American ship named the Velma, crewed by four men, was carrying a load of coal from Boston to Calais, Maine, when the storm hit. The St. Croix Courier newspaper later described the Velma's plight during that storm. The storm came up almost without warning. Nearly every yacht of canvas was taken in as soon as possible and everything made snug. Their desperate efforts were to no avail. The crew found themselves unable to control the vessel and within half an hour she was dashed upon the ledge. The wrecks of many vessels, large and small, lie near this treacherous bit of ledge. As the schooner broke up around them, the Velma's cook, John Carver, drowned. The three surviving crew managed to reach a bit of ledge which stood a few feet above the water, named Cross Jack Ledge. Two of the crew were injured. Captain Durham had a broken leg, and a sailor, whose last name was Young, dislocated his shoulder. Determined to give their friend and colleague a decent burial once they got to land, they dragged John Carver's body with them to that rock. The newspaper detailed their ordeal. The bit of rock on which the shipwrecked sailors found safety for a time began to disappear as the tide came in. When the sea was at its height, the men were obliged to remain in standing position, with the waters reaching nearly to their hips. They had no food, and the cold wind blowing against their wet garments chilled them through and through, and the necessity of standing for several hours at high tide left little time for sleep. Besides all this, the body of their drowned shipmate had to be cared for, lest he be washed away by the waves. This was an extremely treacherous area, and literally hundreds of ships 
have sunk over the centuries just off of Graminan Island, and thousands of sailors had lost their lives there. It was actually quite a bit of work to find this rare shipwreck story from that area that has a happy ending. Because the sailors stranded on that rock were rescued. But rather than me telling their story, they can tell you themselves what happened on Crossjack Ledge. Because after they were rescued, one crew member actually sent an anonymous letter, signed simply Sailor, to the Callus Advertiser newspaper. He described what had happened on that little rock where the sailors stood for 44 hours after their shipwreck. In the case of the Velma, there were no extenuating circumstances that existed which led to the wreck. For there was a sudden and violent storm which arose without warning, just the kind of conditions that are most likely to lead to disaster. It is almost miraculous that any of us live to tell the tale. The howling wind and snow, the crash and roar of the heavy breakers, combined with the pitchy darkness, would have been sufficient to appeal the stoutest heart. But we three men with a pluck that will never say die struggled through the wreckage of the fast disappearing vessel and reached the rock which, fortunately, it being low tide, we were able to cling. They were lucky. Under the circumstances, I mean. Because they weren't completely isolated at sea. But the rock that they were stranded on was actually relatively close to two isolated lighthouses built by the New Brunswick government before Confederation. Which by the time the Velma crashed there, were run by the federal government. Gannett Rock Lighthouse and the Machias Seal Island Lighthouse were staffed by lighthouse keepers whose job it was to search for the ships that had crashed in the storm and these sailors lost at sea and then rescue them. So the crew of these lighthouses were close by and there were two staffers there looking for these shipwrecked sailors. But they actually had to be spotted by the men who were working in those lighthouses. I'm going to go a little bit off topic here because one of these lighthouses, Machia Seal Island, is really particularly interesting. You see, this tiny little, completely remote and isolated little piece of rock in the Bay of Fundy that the lighthouse is built on is actually, even still today, the only piece of land currently in dispute between Canada and the United States. That tiny bare little rock that a lighthouse stands on is claimed by both countries, and neither of which are in the mood to give it up. This little piece of rock, which really isn't all that much bigger than the base of the lighthouse it stands on, is the subject of a two century long dispute by the two nations. Even today, Canada flies in a rotating staff of Coast Guards by helicopter every two weeks to keep its lonely lighthouse constantly manned to assert its sovereignty over the disputed island. Before the arrival of European settlers, this tiny little island was used by the Pesamokati people as a summer hunting location. Seabirds nested there, and their eggs were a popular snack. The Pescumacati named the island Mizancook, which means bear place. Not bears like the large hairy animals with the big sharp claws and teeth, but bear meaning that there was no vegetation growing on the little island. It was just that small. Also, as you might guess from the later white people name for the island, Machias Seal Island, it was and still is a breeding ground for hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of seals. But the little 
island was subject to thick fogs that could roll in and last for several days straight. This, along with the lack of protection from the elements that the name for it implies, meant that it never really took off as a settlement for the Pescamucati, just a summer hunting place. This is also why, after Europeans began arriving in North America, very little attention was paid to the isolated island. Even when wars raged between Canada and the United States, first during the American Revolution, and later during the War of 1812, Machia Seal Island, despite its extremely strategic location, was completely forgotten. It was so forgotten, in fact, that it did not appear in the peace treaties between Britain and the United States, which ended those wars and established the current borders. Yet, even as the ink was still drying on that treaty's paper ending the War of 1812, New Brunswick had designs on the island. This was before Canada existed, and the then independent colony of New Brunswick was actually surprisingly willing to get into some very dramatic border disputes with the United States. Um, New Brunswick actually very nearly went to war with the United States in the 1830s over a border dispute, but that's a whole other story. As for Machias Seal Island though, only five months after that war's end, already a detailed survey map of the island, complete with blueprints for its lighthouse, had been presented to that province's executive council. They uh, really weren't very shy about trying to claim American land back then. Soon after, the first lighthouse was built on the island, claiming the island for New Brunswick, even though they didn't actually technically own it. Ever since then, that lighthouse has remained constantly manned by the Canadians so that the Americans can't snap up the island they still claim to this day. Today, the Canadian Coast Guard still fly in two guards and helicopters for rotating shifts to ensure the island's constantly manned to assert sovereignty. This is actually remaining the only manned lighthouse left in all of Eastern Canada. The reason anyone cares about this little rock in the middle of the sea is that the country that owns this rock controls the lucrative fishing rights around it. Unfortunately though, since both countries claim the island and neither recognizes the other's claims, both nations allow their respective fishing fleets to fish around it. That means that the fishing is doubled and both countries can't agree on common conservation so sadly, it's become something of an ecological nightmare, and the fish stocks surrounding the island have been plummeting. It's kind of sad, really, and a shame that over 200 years our countries couldn't sort out this seemingly not that complicated dispute, but... Anyways, back to the story from Machia Seal Island's lighthouse. On a clear day, you can see the Cross Jack Ledge, where our three shipwrecked sailors are hoping to be rescued. And from the Crossjack Ledge, where these three shipwrecked sailors were stranded in waist-deep water on a tiny rock in the cold mid-October autumn, they could actually see the lighthouse with its distinctive big black and white stripes running from the bottom to the top. But the lighthouse keeper didn't see them. The sailor later wrote about how they tried to attract the attention of the lighthouse keepers. 
The Velma's crew were on a ledge that is entirely submerged at full tides. Early in the forenoon of the 17th, we erected a flagstaff on which a large flag was shown, and during the night, a fire blazed on the rock. The men had also fired several Coston flares, which were an emergency flare gun which had revolutionized safety at sea after its 1859 invention by Martha Coston, who actually had no formal education whatsoever. These old flare guns that they had on that rock are still the basis of today's flare guns, and you'd actually probably be kind of surprised at how little flare guns are different today from the ones that Martha Coston had invented nearly 200 years ago. But the lighthouse keepers on Gannett Rock and Machaya Seal Island didn't see the flares. As dusk fell, the three men stranded on the little rock in the Bay of Fundy kept a fire going on the rock with pieces of the wrecked ship that had washed up around them. That night a fire blazed ten feet above the ledge and was kept burning when the tide would permit. As the next day turned into a second cold and wet night, Still, the two lighthouse keepers failed to see the stranded sailors. After his later rescue, the sailor who had written into the newspaper squarely pinned some of the blame for being stranded for so long within sight of the very people who were supposed to save him on the lighthouse keepers themselves. He bitterly and sarcastically wrote in his letter, the keeper of the station will probably receive through the newspapers his first intimation that there had been a wreck and loss of life at his door. Most of all, though, the sailor blamed Canada's federal government for their ordeal. The sailor called for an inquest into the wreck of the Velma, which he hoped would bring about changes in marine safety, writing, had the ministers of marine spent even three hours on the cross-track ledge under the eyes of two of his employees, he would not hesitate to have the matter fully investigated. I hope it may be that the marine department will no longer say to the captain whose ship is stranded, if you want aid or advice, go to the nearest potato patcher stable and ask a farmer for help and say to the sailor who clings to the wreck or rock, hold on my good man, hold on. You are right under the eyes of a number of my employees. One of them may wake up in a day or two. If he should, we will send a lifeboat after you. In the end, the lighthouse keepers never did actually see the three men stranded on the crossjack ledge. Rather, it was a distinctly more unexpected group of men who would spot the shipwrecked sailors. Shortly before noon on the second day on the small rock, a fishing boat spotted a flare. These men were from the small community of Three Islands, a little island off the southeast coast of Grand Manan. The little village of Three Islands was abandoned years and years ago, and as far as I'm aware, there's nothing left of that little fishing village today. The fishermen were an implausible rescue crew. According to the American news reports, there was a 75-year age difference between the oldest and the youngest rescuer. Albert F. Cheney was a grandfather, and with him on their fishing boat was his son Lloyd and his grandson, Arthur. The three men sailed up near the rocks to rescue the sailors. It was a precarious operation. Striking one of the exposed rocks would mean two shipwrecks. They launched a little lifeboat and paddled up to the rock, taking the shipwrecked sailors and the body of their friend one by one back to their little fishing boat. 
the Washington Evening News wrote that the three men proceeded at once to that place. The rescue of the wrecked men was accomplished in the heavy sea by the bold and skillful handling of their boat by the rescuing party. The event was later memorialized in the Fred Williams painting called One by One. Although the sailor had written sadly that those who rescue and care for the living and the dead will receive neither recognition nor reward. On this, he was actually wrong. In fact, the grateful American government brought the Cheney family to Washington, D.C. to celebrate Christmas. The day after Christmas, a ceremony was held to honor them. The Boston Herald newspaper reported that they were honored because this wasn't the first time that the Cheney family had ever saved shipwrecked sailors. The consul stated that during a period of more than 75 years, the Cheney's grandfather, father, and son have on several occasions rescued and cared for shipwrecked persons and piloted vessels from positions of danger to places of safety. The American president then presented them with a gold watch and chain, a charm, and gold life-saving medals as tokens of their appreciation. The Washington Evening News wrote, the Cheneys are as modest as they are brave and most reluctant to speak of their acts of heroism and humanity, which they regard simply as in the line of duty and not deserving of special mention. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.